This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast here with Dr. Luke Tomich, a a pediatric neurosurgeon focusing in epilepsy uh, from New Jersey, who I and I'm sure many of our listeners were very privileged to hear speak at the recent CNS meeting in San Francisco about work he's been doing supporting neurosurgeons in Ukraine with the conflict there. Um, I really enjoyed the presentation he gave and including a direct message from his main contact, a neurosurgeon on the ground in Ukraine. And immediately after the presentation, I knew that I wanted to use this platform that we have to share the work that's going on, the aid and both educational and direct being sent over to the folks in Ukraine and the story behind Dr. Tomich's involvement and dedication to helping the surgeons there. So I'm really glad and honored that he was able to give some time. Dr. Tomich, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, JP. And thanks for, uh, again, continuing to uh, shed light on this, uh, this issue in Ukraine. So thank you. And, and as we were talking about before we started here, I, I do want to get that message that you shared and the work that's going on in front of all of our audience members that weren't physically at the meeting at CNS and so didn't get to hear your talk there. But let's, if we could kind of work our way towards the presentation you gave and towards the work that you're doing now, tell us a little bit about your background and why you're so invested in this cause. Sure. So I was born in the United States, raised in the United States, but uh, I had four grandparents uh, who were all from Western Ukraine. Uh, So I was raised, I would say, uh, with a lot of Ukrainian customs and certainly with the Ukrainian language and a sense of Ukrainian history um, and, and, and curiosity about this country, which I had never been to, but uh, had heard a lot about. Uh, and so I think um, when, I, <clears throat> when I was still in medical school, I actually... Uh, took my first trip to Ukraine. At that point, Ukraine Ukraine became an independent country uh, in 1991 after the fall of the Soviet Union, and uh, it was very hard to travel there before. But after after I think it was in the year 2000 was the first time I traveled to Ukraine. I was a medical student at that time, and I was helping out a group called uh, Children for Chernobyl. And at that point, uh, you know, I was just shadowing doctors in Ukraine, trying to get a sense of uh, the health system there. I guess once I became a neurosurgeon uh, myself, I, I thought, well, now now I've got some uh, some actual skill set and expertise that I can share, and uh, I'd like to go back out there. Uh, and that that's that's sort of my background and how I became interested in Ukraine. That's a great story. Um, it you know, and that's something that I didn't appreciate when I was first hearing you talk about everything that that deep personal tie you have, your own family, um, as recently as your grandparents, that deep tie to the country. So maybe if we can now look into the more recent past, um, paint me a picture, if you could, for what was going on in your life when this conflict broke out in Ukraine, the incursion, the invasion, where were you professionally? How did you react initially? And perhaps how long from the event unfolding did it take you to realize, A, you had the capacity to do something, and B, decide to do it? So 
I'm, I'm going to answer that question in a, in a bit of a roundabout way. You know, th this recent conflict was obviously um, started, you know, this was February 24th uh, of this year. But, you know, Ukraine has been at war uh, with, you know, Russian, what, what they what they call in the news, Russian supported separatists in eastern Ukraine uh, for many, many years. Right. Since 2014, hmm. for over about eight years now. And uh, so our, our work actually started in Ukraine uh, after, after what they called the Maidan Revolution. And if any of your listeners are interested, there's a really beautiful documentary called Winter on Fire. Uh, actually, the filmmakers are a Russian guy who, um, who we've gotten the opportunity to meet. Really nice guy who, who made a beautiful movie about that revolution in Ukraine in 2014. And I think it became apparent to a lot of people, even at that moment, that Ukraine was now moving out of the grasp, sort of the Russian sphere of influence. And uh, it seemed like at that point, uh, the Kremlin made a decision that they're either going to, you know, put a stop to this or they're going to watch it happen. And so uh, that was when uh, uh, Crimea was illegally annexed. And that was when uh, hostility mm -hmm. started in the Donbass. And that's actually when our project started uh, back in 2014. And I think, you know, um, why it started at that time? Well, I, I finished residency. Um, uh, there's a little bit to this story, so you can interrupt me at any time. But I finished residency at University of Washington, Seattle, uh, uh, fellowship rather. Hmm. And I remember uh, we had a guest speaker, Henry Marsh. And Henry Marsh, uh, many of your uh, viewers might know about Henry Marsh because right. he's written a lot of popular neurosurgical books. And he's really uh, uh, done a tremendous job, I think, at um, talking in a in a accessible way about about the realities of a life in neurosurgery. And he's written a, a lot of beautiful books. But Henry Marsh gave a talk in Seattle. And I remember somebody said to me, you know, he goes to Ukraine every year. Uh, you know, you should ask him about it, because if you're a Ukrainian, you want to go there, too. You know, he's a good guy to talk to. So I did. I spoke to Henry Marsh and we um, kept a correspondence going for a period of time. And he actually introduced me to Ihor Kurletz, which was uh, the young neurosurgeon who spoke at the CNS. And right. Ihor was our first partner in Ukraine. So that's sort of how that happened. But I think, you know, um, well, why, why did it all start around the time of the Maidan? So after the 2014 revolution, I think this was a time where a lot of people in the United States who had some connection to Ukraine, there was kind of a renewal and in interest in Ukraine because, uh, again, Ukraine was, was demonstrating to the world that they wanted to move to the West and, and finally make a break with their uh, Soviet past. And so right. this was exciting for a lot of Ukrainians in the United States and uh, many different groups sprung up, uh, sort of NGOs, 501c3s, around the 2014 Maidan and many of them continue to today. And that's, that's when our project actually started. And that, that was when we took our first trip. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think I agree that um, all of our listeners will be familiar, at least with the name Henry Marsh. Uh, Do No Harm, his first novel, is very, very popular and, and still discussed among uh, many of us, even in residency now. I had no idea that he was involved in uh, neurosurgical trips and work in the Ukraine, what what an interesting and fantastic tie-in uh, for someone that is so well known in the in the public sphere, both in and outside of our field, that uh, you were able to use him as a connection into this relief work. Um, so, 
now that we've made it up to the point where your project begins, I presume that with the recent uh, conflict, there was some turn or transition in maybe the degree of assistance that you provide or, or the frequency. Did, if at all, how did things change with the more recent conflict? Yeah, so um, to answer that question, I'm going to go back to 2014 again for just a second. When sure. we started the project, uh, after about a year of going to Ukraine, we realized that we wanted to organize as a 501c3 because we were encountering patients who needed surgery and we needed to be able to pay for those surgeries, uh, to pay for the equipment we use during the surgery. And um, uh, we can talk about that in, in a moment here. But we mm -hmm. worked in both private and governmental hospitals and they had different pay structures. And so to support paying for surgeries for patients who can afford their surgeries, we wanted to have the ability to ask for, um, you know, tax, uh, tax deductible uh, donations. And so uh, my wife actually in 2014, she grew up in Ukraine. She moved to the United States when she was uh, 14 years old. Uh, her name's Maria Soroka. And she, with a group of her friends in New York City in 2014, they started a large 501c3 called Razum for Ukraine, or, or Razum means together in Ukrainian. And um, so now fast forward to uh, this recent conflict. So our, our project is called the Copilot Project, and it's organized under Razum, which is the umbrella organization, the 501c3. Uh, again, on which my wife is a board member. And so um, what what changed in February 24th is it made what we're doing in our project, the co-pilot project, a little bit more difficult, obviously, in, um, in various ways. And it actually it led to a significant boost, at least in fundraising potential for the umbrella organization, the 501c3 Razum. Um, to date, they've they've raised you know over sixty five million. And that's just since February. So wow, they, they've become one of the biggest five hundred one c threes supporting work in Ukraine in the United States now. Again, if you don't count like Red Cross and some of these massive ones that do work in a lot of different places. So the, uh, so you know, in some ways, how has it changed our trips? Well, we've taken two trips to Ukraine since the outbreak of the war in February twenty fourth. Uh, the first one was with uh, a neurosurgeon from the University of Cincinnati, John Forbes. He and I traveled to Lviv and basically did uh, some epilepsy, some tumor work with uh, one of the surgeons in Lviv. And we also tried to work on uh, a separate project, which is very much a wartime project, which was helping to uh, organize ICU uh, trains with ICU capability to transfer injured soldiers out of Dnipro. So there was a lot of different groups working on this, but this was a particular request that we got. And so, you know, it, it was sort of an organizational trip. There were a lot of meetings, meeting with people. And then obviously there was some surgery. Um, uh, the second trip that we took since the war started was a group of ENT facial plastic surgeons reached out to us and they said they wanted to help with facial reconstruction of injured soldiers. And again, because of our network in Ukraine, specifically among Ukrainian physicians, they asked for help organizing this. And also they wanted a neurosurgeon in case they needed uh, any cranial support for these complex facial reconstructions. And so we went on another trip 
uh, just about a month ago, uh, six weeks ago, uh, to Ivano-Frankivsk, which is a town in Western Ukraine. And we supported an ENT department. And then again, since I was there, I always end up hooking up with local neurosurgeons. And I think I coiled two aneurysms and did a callosotomy in uh, a Moya Moya case while I was there on the neurosurgery side. So we, we always end up working with neurosurgeons too when we go. But uh, that was, so those were the last two trips that we took since the war started. And I guess what I would say is um, obviously, you know, right now there's a huge focus on taking care of war injured and less of a focus on elective neurosurgery. Having said right. that, the elective neurosurgery doesn't just disappear as we, as we all know, you know, the kids with brain tumors keep showing up. And so our partners specifically in Lviv in Western Ukraine have become three times as busy as they were before because, you know, a lot of the eastern part of the country has emptied out. There's a lot of refugees. And so uh, the elective work keeps going. But, but again, there's now a renewed interest on uh, specifically taking care of the trauma patients and the injured. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, that's something I really wanted to touch on in this conversation, because one of the most um, interesting, I guess, from a professional standpoint or technical standpoint, one of the most interesting aspects of your presentation was the discussion of these novel injury patterns that neurosurgeons aren't really used to seeing, particularly in a civilian population from some of the novel uh, ballistic artillery that's being used right there now. So um, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like being there on the ground um, in the two trips that you took, what kind of patients you saw, and, and then if you could talk a little bit about these novel injury patterns, because so, so much of the roots of neurosurgery, unfortunately, is in trauma and, you know, Cushing in the war and, and so much of what we've done historically, our techniques for decompression, our thresholds for decompression uh, come from military conflict as a, a bed of trauma, if you will. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like being there on the ground for you and then about some of these patients you've seen with a novel disease. Sure. I'll take it in the reverse fashion. So regarding those types of injuries, you know, I'm really proud of our partners and the Ukrainian neurosurgeons in cities like Dnipro, which receives a lot of the war wounded, because they have really uh, been innovative in trying to develop uh, ways to take care of these very uh, devastating injuries. I, you know, because I'm on uh, some of these physicians groups on WhatsApp and things like that, I, I get pictures of some of these injuries. And, you know, without going into gory detail, I mean, you can imagine sort of a, an eight centimeter by eight centimeter hole in the back with no tissue going all the way down to the spinal canal and dura destroyed at several levels. This is what they're right. encountering. And early on, they, 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 we're struggling, as you can imagine, with how to take care of these injuries. I, I was getting calls early in the conflict from Ihor, who was in Nipro, saying, you know, we're closing these as best as we can. We're using some, you know, local tissue flaps. But, you know, everybody's leaking. Everybody's leaking CSF and they leak CSF and then they get meningitis. And many of these boys end up, uh, you know, uh, you know, in some cases dying uh, or, or having horrible infections. And so, his initial request was, can you send lumbar drains? But, you know, over time, they changed their technique uh, so that, and again, I'm, I'm no expert in this. I haven't done any of these surgeries. But what Ihor has described to me is basically uh, they would find ways to use uh, 
rotational flaps from paraspinal muscles that they would apply directly to these large dural defects. Uh, and, and basically, I, I think, again, from what I can understand, the muscle sort of uh, scars down in a way that it prevents CSF leakage, at least not at the rate that they were having before. Uh, obviously, they were using lumbar drains, I think, in, in conjunction with this. But, um, you know, it, it, long story short, they, they at least feel that they've had significant success over the last several months at managing these very difficult uh, spinal injuries and decreasing their CSF leak rates. Uh, now, mm-hmm. when it comes to what we see when we go there, the, you know, there is actually a, a law in Ukraine that, uh, civil, um, you know, foreigners specifically, uh, it may not be a law, but there, there's significant regulations about me getting into a military hospital. So I, I've actually never been in a military hospital in Ukraine during mm-hmm. wartime. The hospitals that I go to are civilian hospitals. Now, the mix of patients we've seen there in neurosurgery, for the surgeries that I've done, it's still mostly elective neurosurgery. So again, since I'm uh, mostly an epilepsy surgeon in the United States, uh, I've done, you know, these last two trips have involved several epilepsy cases. Um, uh, and brain tumors always is part of what we do. It's brain tumors, probably, if you look at all the cases we've done in Ukraine, that's probably still more than 60%. And mm-hmm. then, um, so, so again, I, I, there was one case uh, on my last trip of a child, unfortunately, five-year-old child with a bullet hole uh, in the back of the head. And there was some discussion about should we uh, extract that bullet or not. Uh, it, it, we did not end up operating on that child for uh, a number of complex reasons. But long story short, most of the neurosurgery I've done is still elective neurosurgery even during wartime. And that's largely because the, the the neurosurgery that's being done on the on the soldiers who are wounded is being done in military hospitals, and they've really restricted right. access to those hospitals. Right. That, you know, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about your elective practice and the a milieu of cases you do when you're over there. Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this significant and I think consistent pattern. Uh, that you see across the field of of neurosurgeons in our country, where it seems like those with the most global perspective and those with the the most inclination towards and who invest the most time in doing work around the world tend to cluster within pediatric neurosurgery. Um, I'm I'm sure that's a large function of the diseases within pediatric neurosurgery that have the potential to be treated um, around the world and, and the need around the world, but obviously, you're a pediatric neurosurgeon and you have close personal ties to the Ukraine, but I'm sure there are many uh, neurosurgeons in the country of Ukrainian descent with Ukrainian families who didn't take that leap when you did in 2014 to, uh, you know, start this group that blossomed into this company, the Copilot Project. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your impression on that pattern. What, what, What's the chicken? What's the egg? Why do you think there's this draw of pediatric neurosurgeons to taking the global health perspective? I'm not sure. Certainly, you know, um, I'll tell you, there, there were two pediatric neurosurgeons before I took my first trip who I sat down and sort of consulted with and talked to. And one of them was Jim Rutka, who um, his family is from a town called Chevnivtsi in Ukraine. So he's Ukrainian. Uh, and the other one's Ben Worf. Again, they're both pediatric neurosurgeons who, uh, Ben Worf, I'm not sure, again, most of your viewers probably know this name. He won Genius Award, and he's a very, uh, you know, uh, impressive, accomplished pediatric neurosurgeon at Harvard who uh, uh, 
did some really pioneering work on endoscopic third ventriculostomy in kids and cord right. plexus coagulation. But anyway, I took I talked to both of them just to get a sense about some of the logistics and the legal aspects of operating in a foreign country because they had both done a lot of that. And um, I I don't know that pediatric neurosurgeons do the majority of this kind of work. I certainly think that. Uh, if you look at, you know, one of my old fellow residents, Mike Dewan, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt now, they wrote a very nice paper when he was a uh, public health, uh, uh, doing his master's in public health on the massive neurosurgical gap in, in, the, in what we call low and middle income countries. And it's, it's profound. And it's not just in pediatric neurosurgery. It's, it's across the board. And so uh, I'm not sure if it's mostly pediatric neurosurgeons. Uh, certainly, there does seem to be some interest in that, but I, I think th there there is room for all sorts of uh, neurosurgeons to do this kind of work, and uh, there's definitely a large uh, a large gap. Yeah, and I, and I should say for our listeners, this is off the cuff. I certainly don't have any numbers on what specialties or or subspecialties of neurosurgeons do charitable work or mission work around the uh, around the world. I mean, it just seems like many of the large trips and large groups seem to be centered in peds and, you know, obviously around hydrocephalus and uh, things like that. I, I'll also point our listeners back to episode 94 when I talked with Dr. Sandy Lamb here in Chicago at Lurie Children's about similar work that she does. Um, but that it, it, it's, it's an interesting pattern that I at least have observed as I've uh, come up within the field. Um, but Dr. Uh, Dr. Tomich, as we come to an end here, I did want to take one moment at least. You, you mentioned your organization and your group, but I wonder if you could lay out for our listeners, um, anyone in the field at various levels, tangential to the field, if people wanted to get involved, lend support, lend funding, um, what kinds of ways can people lend a hand and where can they find you to try to get uh, connected? Yeah, I think, uh, so first of all, uh, we, we do, uh, you know, the 501c3 we work with is called Razum. Their website is razum4ukraine.org. Uh, so again, they, they're a good group if you want to, uh, if you're interested in financial uh, donations, because again, they're very well connected on the ground in Ukraine. And so that's uh, it's a group that we've been working with. Um, I, you know, just in the last couple of weeks since I spoke at CNS, I've had a number of medical students, residents, uh, attending neurosurgeons reach out to me, interested in everything from traveling to Ukraine and being a part of some of these trips to uh, donating supplies. And, and again, uh, you know, my, my email is Tomichluke, T-O-M-Y-C-Z-L-U-K-E at gmail.com. You can always send me an email. I'm happy to hear from you. You know, look, I think I think we are excited about the work we're doing in Ukraine because we see uh, the fruit of that labor. You know, we see surgeons who were quite uncomfortable doing a basic craniotomy five years ago and who are now doing hemispherotomies, posterior quadrant disconnections, taking out complex brain tumors. And so we and, and, and again, that's not that's not all because of our work, but but we we, we like to think that we've played a role in that uh Development and so again, we're we're always looking for surgeons from various subspecialties. We're planning a trip to Ukraine again in April of 2023, uh, and looking to bring a, a big group of neurosurgeons. So please contact me. Feel free to reach out, and uh, I think you'll find it's you'll have a great time and, and really feel like you're connecting with the reason why you went into medicine. At least that's how I feel when I go there. 
That's excellent. I'll make sure to put links to the website and your email in the show notes for our listeners so they can find you easily um, and get involved if they have any inclination to do so. It is an unfortunate side effect of our discipline that uh, so frequently in life, the, the horrors of human disease, and in this case, the horrors of war, uh, you know, as we react to it as humans, we then also have to react to it as professionals and, and view these things as technical problems. So um, anyone who can help and would help, I, I truly hope will get connected with you, Dr. Tomich, and uh, have an avenue to do so. Um, but last thing I want to do for our listeners, if, if any of you have enjoyed this episode and hearing Dr. Tomich speak, um, we have a, a bit of a around the corner announcement that you may have an opportunity to hear him speak at greater length in the future. Uh, Dr. Tomich, do you want to tell our listeners about what you have coming up? Sure. Um, we, uh, I was excited to speak with JP today, and I told him that we're actually uh, starting our own podcast specifically on epilepsy surgery. Uh, many of your listeners probably know that epilepsy surgery is one of the most underutilized types of surgery uh, in, in our field. Uh, there was an Institute of Medicine report from about three or four years ago that suggested we're operating on probably less than five, fewer than 5% of appropriate surgical candidates. Mm. And so epilepsy surgery is uh, the dominant part of my practice in the United States. And uh, it's something that we, we want to get that message of underutilization out, not only to neurologists, other neurosurgeons, other physicians, pediatricians, and to the patients themselves suffering with epilepsy. And so we're starting something called the Epilepsy Podcast, and we've recorded already the first few additions, and uh, we're looking forward to launching that here in the next uh, month or so. That's really exciting. I'm, uh, I look forward to listening to that myself. It's always uh, a lot of fun and, and a lot of excitement to see new podcasts cropping up within our specialty. I'm sure anyone who listens to this show will be interested in that topic as well. So uh, Dr. Tomich, I, like I said, very honored and grateful to have you give your time to come on the show, uh, share your work and, and all the efforts you've been putting into the conflict in Ukraine for years now, and particularly this year. Um, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. And I hope that, uh, you know, even one person from listening to this comes your way to, to try to lend a hand in some capacity. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, John Paul. Appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.